Welcome to this week's episode of Crime Survivor Speak. My name is Aswat Thomas. I'm the National Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. We are a national network of 90,000 victims from across the country. Today's episode asks an important question. Does victim compensation help victims? I've been waiting to have this conversation ever since I learned about victims' compensation four years after I got shot. So what is victims' compensation? Victims' compensation is a direct reimbursement to or on behalf of a crime victim for a wide variety of crime-related expenses, such as medical costs, mental health counseling, lost wages, funeral and burial costs helping with relocation expenses, helping to repair damaged windows or locks as a result of victimization, also helps to cover the loss of support for dependents of victims as well. Eligibility for compensation varies by state and territory. Victims' compensation doesn't help the majority of crime victims like me. The eligibility requirements are so restrictive. You have to turn in the application so fast. In states like Michigan, Victims have at least 48 hours to file a police report in order to be eligible for the program. After that, the victim only has one year to apply for the program. Many states across the country have similar time limits and face so many barriers. So Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice and our members, we are going state by state to revamp this whole program. In today's episode, we'll talk about a historic bill that was just passed last year in Ohio that made significant changes to the state's victims' compensation program to better support crime survivors. Today, I will be talking with India Brown from Cleveland, Ohio. India is a licensed independent social worker who specializes in trauma, where she provides individual counseling for adolescents and adults. India is also a crime survivor and served as the co-chapter coordinator of the Cleveland chapter of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. India recently led efforts to help pass the historic victim compensation reform bill in Ohio, Senate Bill 36, that made significant changes to the state's victim's compensation program to better support crime survivors across the state. India, welcome to the Crime Survivor Speak podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, Oswald. It is truly an honor to be a part of this podcast this evening and talk about how some of those barriers that I experience have actually been taken away in the best interest of the survivors. Before we jump into your experience as a survivor, so you're from what I know now is the Forest City, Cleveland, Ohio. I would love to hear what was your experience like growing up in Cleveland? What were some of your favorite memories? So I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. I will be 37 on Sunday, so I've spent 37 years in Cleveland. I graduated from Cleveland Municipal School District, which is our public school district for Cleveland. I also went to Brandon Stratton, in which I obtained my bachelor's in criminal justice. And I also went to Cleveland State, in which I obtained my master's in social work. Growing up, we were poor. I grew up in poverty. So my best memories were when my family did things together, like family holidays, outings with either side of the family, going to Burger King, because that was a once-in-a-while type opportunity for us, and playing the original Nintendo, which I actually have the retro one today. That's how much I enjoyed it. But another good memory that I miss, however, and I miss it dearly, is when growing up in a community where people were not just your neighbors, they were more so like your family. 
So everybody looked out for everyone. Everyone knew everyone. You weren't just some random kid on your street. Every family knew everyone's kids. Every parent knew the other parents, etc. So it was that sense of community that I look back and wish was still here today. Thank you so much. Congratulations on all of your achievements. I have my master's in social work as well. So it's awesome to talk to a fellow social worker. So you shared a little bit about your experiences of growing up, lots of fun, but also a lot of hardships of growing up in poverty and growing up often surrounded by violence as well. Would love to hear a little bit more about your experience in high school. I believe that's where you met your high school sweetheart, Donald. Can you tell us a little bit about Donald? Yes. So I was 14. Donald was 15. We met through a mutual friend. And a lot of the times, because, of course, we were teenagers and nobody was driving, we would spend a lot of our time on the phone. I got in trouble a lot because I was on the phone until 3, 4 in the morning when I was supposed to be in bed for school. But hey, I got up and I still made it. Donald, however, he had a difficult upbringing. His father was absent in his life. He was also the only male to four sisters. He loved his family. Like, he would always make sure he provided for them as much as he could, even as a teenager. Family was a very important concept for him. So despite what was going on in Donald's life, however, you always caught him with a smile. The type of smile that literally lights up a room. Like, there was no worry in the world, despite I knew that there was worry. So you and Donald, you had two kids. What are the names or what are some of the things that they like to do? My daughter, Treasure, she's 19. She actually ventured off to college in West Virginia last fall, but she did not like it down there. So, of course, she came back home. And she played volleyball, like, her entire middle school to high school time frame. And actually, that's how she ended up with a scholarship to West Virginia. My son, Darian, he's 15. He's actually real big into baseball. So I spent a lot of time with that. They were babies when things went wrong in our lives. So a lot of things they remember and some things they don't. Let's talk about that. So in 2007, you and your family's lives changed forever. What happened on that day that changed your life forever? That's why when I say I will always remember that day, like it is still the present moment. Sometimes it gives me chills about it. But it all started on June 19, 2007. Me and Donald, we were supposed to meet up that evening to kind of discuss moving forward as co-parents. Relationship had pretty much came to its end. I was 22. He was 23. I was on my way headed out with some friends. And he had some things that he was taking care of. So we both agreed that we would meet later that evening to kind of break down what life was going to look like for us moving forward. Well, unfortunately, that night never came. When I came back home from meeting with friends, I called him several times and never got a response. I called around, asking other people how they saw him because it wasn't like him to not answer my phone call. So I called the next day. Still no answer. I even attempted to file a missing person report because it was so unusual for him to go days on end without anybody hearing from him. But when the police came to my house, they told me it was too soon. It was already like 48 hours since the last time I saw him. And because he was an adult, they said that I had to give it some time. Well, on June 26, 2007, I received a call from his youngest daughter's mother 
that Donald was admitted to the local, one of our local hospitals up here, and he was in their ICU due to almost being beat to death. And on July 2nd, 2007, Donald died of his injuries. India, I know that just as I'm listening to you today, just how difficult that must have been for you, for Donald's family, but also for your kids. Walk me through that experience of having Donald lose his life to violence and having to deal and cope for yourself as a mother, but also how did you help your children deal with losing their father? So at the time, Treasure was four and Darian was only about 11 months at the time of his death. Here it is. I'm 22, single mom. Never thought I would be raising two kids by myself. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn to. All I knew is that we had to prepare for a funeral and I had to keep my head level in order to continue parenting. During this time of having to prepare for a funeral, still grieving, the entire family is grieving. You have to bury uh, your kid's father. During this time, were you offered any services or support, or did you and Donald's family uh, apply for the Ohio Victims Compensation Program? So, as what I'm gonna give you a whole backdrop of that, okay? When I say there was no help, I mean no help. The response from the justice system is not what you see on TV. It is not. So, like, when I got to the hospital, there was no detective information. I didn't know who to call, where to turn to. I'm asking the nurses, like, hey, do you know who I'm supposed to talk to? You know, I have his insurance card. I have his ID. What else do I need to do? I literally had to call the police department, and I was left on hold forever to the point where I called multiple times, was put on hold to the point where I just hung up. I couldn't get into contact with a prosecutor. No advocates were ever assigned to the case. I literally did not know what I needed to do with the legal system. Again, who I needed to talk to, who was going to make me aware of if the person was arrested, when was the court proceedings. All these things that we see on police shows. I had none of that. The way that I found out anything was that I went on to our clerk of courts docket. And I found out, oh, the person was arrested. Oh, the person has an upcoming court date. And the crazy part about it is the upcoming court date was actually his sentencing date. So at this point, I'm scavenging around the house trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the kids because I know for a fact I have to be there. And when I get down there, they only gave the guy a year because the witnesses never showed up. So the state didn't have a case. And I remember the prosecutor telling me when I finally met him, because the case literally had fell in his lap not too long before the sentencing, that it wasn't until people like me and him who wanted change that we would actually see change. As far as victims' compensation, I knew nothing about it. We had never been through anything of that matter to the point where we had to reach out to anyone. But I will never forget that call. I literally got information from like a friend like six months later. And she was like, did you reach out to Victims Compensation? And I'm like, who are they? What is this? So she explained it to me and she was like, you know, you may be able to get something for the kids. I called down to Columbus and 
the woman that answered the phone, you know, I told her what had happened. And she said, what is your loved one's name? So I gave her his name. She asked me date of birth. And she asked me, did he have a felony? I'm sitting here at this point, like, what does any of that matter at this moment? I got two kids. What am I supposed to do? And when I told her, I was like, yeah, he does. He has a felony four and felony five, which is our low-level felonies in Cleveland. And she literally said, y'all don't qualify for nothing. And I was just like stuck. Like I froze. And I was like, okay. And I hung up the phone. No one said anything that we would be eligible for counseling, grief counseling. Didn't give me any connections to support groups. I, at the point, had to pretty much figure out finances, even though I was working. Like, I knew for a fact that at this point, I needed to pick up more hours because there was an absent parent. So, like, I literally was trying to figure everything out without anyone's help because my parents didn't know what to do. They had never experienced it. So I'm like, what now? What next? So that's what made me go to Brandon Stratton. Actually, me and Donald had enrolled in Brandon Stratton before his death. So... I said, you want to know something? This is what I'm going to continue to do. That's when I just said, okay, I'm going to dive into school, get this degree, and I'm going to make things change. And so I got my degree, and there was no change. So that made me feel defeated. You're bringing up something that I hear across the country. Victims of crime live in underserved communities of color, Black crime victims, Latino crime victims, After becoming a victim to violence or having a a loved one become a a victim, whether it's gun violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, in communities of color, it's a consistent theme that there's no follow-up from law enforcement, no connection to services, no advocate to help you navigate the criminal justice system or to navigate things like victim services, or when they try to go out and seek services, just like you did to get support for not only you, but for your children, were told that you and your family were denied access to compensation. I want to hear, what did that feel like, that rejection of you trying to go get that support and services and being told that because of Donald's past criminal history, that the state is denying access to therapy to you and and your kids? The crazy part about it is, I don't even know if I would actually say it was a denial to services. She just didn't tell, like, she didn't tell me anything else. After she said we didn't qualify for compensation, I'm thinking that, okay, we don't qualify for that. Is there something else we could qualify for? You know what I'm saying? And she literally just said, no, you don't qualify. And I'm like, oh, okay, like, the compensation, I don't qualify for that. But is there something else? I remember Treasure, she was maybe about 12. And I started seeing some behaviors that I was like, okay, this is that void of not having her father. And I remember reaching out to a grief counseling agency and them asking me the different things that she was exhibiting. And they was like, oh, no, that's not grief. That's just normal 12-year-old behavior. And I'm like, no, it's not. It really wasn't. And The fact that they didn't even say, well, come in, let us actually assess her, not just go by what you're saying. Let us see as clinicians if this is normal behavior or if it's grief. Nothing. Wow. Unbelievable. And so you've seen the impact of unaddressed trauma, how that impacted your kids, how that impacted 
not only you and your family, but also just the impact that had on Donald's family, who also have been struggling and continues to struggle with losing a loved one. India also would love to hear during this time of one losing Donald, being devastated and no support from law enforcement, no support from any victim advocate or compensation program. We'd love to hear like who was most helpful to you and your family during this time? Was it a church? Was it community members? Was it other survivors? Uh, Was it support groups? Who was most helpful to you and your family during this time? And, And what did they do to help? My friends stepped in wholeheartedly both sides of the family, and our church community. Like, they were there to help us go through the whole funeral arrangements. Actually, his mom, Pastor, actually took care of the funeral arrangements because we didn't have it. People would be a listening ear. They would bring over food. They just simply helped out however they could. Those were the people that were there to help navigate. And again, nobody really knew much about the systems part of it, but they were there to help us however they possibly could. And that just brings me back to when I became a victim of gun violence. And I remember recovering on my mother's one-bedroom apartment on this hard couch. Here I am sitting down with two gunshot wounds to my back. And law enforcement came to visit me several times. It was always about the case. They never asked me how I was doing. There was actually a victim advocate in their department who was supposed to work with victims like myself, and they never connected me with any services. So, like, my family and I was left to deal with that on our own. But it was this one organization that did reach out. It was an organization called Mothers United Against Violence. This group of mothers who've all lost their children to violence, you know, provided support to me, but also provided that support to my mother at the time, who I think needed it the most, seeing you know, her youngest son uh, shot and not having any support and services. You know, often when we become victims, it's often it's not law enforcement who provides support. It's not victim services. Often it's our family and our loved ones who are responding to our needs and being that support system for us. Millions of dollars have been coming into our communities for decades. None of those resources reach your family. What would you have liked for you and your family during this time as it relates to service? What are some of the services and support that you all would have liked if you had been able to get that? I really wish that someone would have told me about counseling because I remember one day someone telling me that they could see how angry I was and that maybe I needed to go to the cemetery and sit and have a conversation because I was angry. I was a single mom, like, Why did you leave me? Why am I here to be left with raising these kids myself? And I took their advice and I went to the cemetery and I cried. I yelled. I screamed. If somebody would have walked up, they would have thought, like, I literally had lost my loved one right then and there. And I went there and I just expressed everything that I was feeling. And that is something that I recommend to my clients now when I do therapy and they're dealing with grief. Go have that conversation that you did not have before that person was murdered. Go have that conversation that you wish you would have got off your chest before they would have died. So I wish someone would have told me about counseling and the importance that has to your healing journey. I wish someone would have told me, set me down in a parenting class. This is what parenting looks like now being a single parent. Just support around the new new because your life has changed now. This is what you can expect 
as a grieving mother with young kids. This is what you can expect as just a grieving woman yourself. These are the things that you should look out for your children in this time. I wish someone would have explained all of those things. Mm. That is why you decided to pursue a career in counseling, right? To make that difference and to be there for, you know, the clients uh, that you serve. Do they have that same or similar experiences to what you had? Is that a norm with the clients that you're serving in Ohio? That is very much a norm. Back in 2017, when Ohio brought trauma recovery centers to Ohio, a lot of the clients that I would see, like I would walk into these hospital rooms after their victimization. And I remember a young lady, she had three kids. She was shot randomly. And I went in there to talk to her about services. And she said, if you're here to talk to me about compensation, I don't qualify. And I'm like, what do you mean? I haven't even got it out yet. She was like, I have a felony. And I was like, oh, okay, yes, that is a barrier to compensation. But let me tell you about these other supports that are available to you other than just compensation. There was this one family who their son and brother was shot. And I remember sitting down with a sister, answering some of her questions of what to expect, what do things look like from a sibling standpoint, because a lot of times the siblings are the forgotten ones. No one talks with them. Everybody's tending to the parents. You're kind of just there left alone to kind of figure it out. So I kind of walked her through it and I walked the parents through what it would look like. One of the barriers for me when Donald was at the hospital was I couldn't pay for parking every day at the hospital. It's pay for parking to sit with him or make sure my kids had milk and food on the table. So with the trauma recovery center that I was at, that's one of the things that we made sure families had. You don't have to worry about food. You don't have to worry about parking. Just be here with your loved one. When you grieve and things look different for everybody. You know, you may punch something, you may yell, you may scream. But because some of the doctors and nurses didn't know how to respond to that, they would contact the hospital police. And I would have to go down to the ER and let them know, like, let me just talk with the family. Tell the police just to stand back. Let me go talk with them and let me de-escalate the situation. And nine times out of 10, that de-escalation happened because they were talking to somebody who understood what it was like to have your loved one be taken from you and you don't know where to turn or what to do next. So not only did you kind of channel that pain, that hurt into being a service provider, but you also turned into an advocate as well. What made you get involved with crime survivors safety and justice? Ohio launched the trauma recovery centers and the coordinators were invited to Sacramento. It was in Sacramento where the trauma recovery centers originated from. So I'm sitting in some of the breakout sessions and I'm sitting among other survivors and I'm hearing their stories, I'm hearing their pain, but I'm also seeing their healing. And I was like, this is something different. I need to be a part of this. What is this? You can really function normally. And I met Shakira Diaz and I remember telling her, I was like, Shakira, I want to be a part of this. This spoke to me, like it touched my soul. And she was like, you already are. And I was like, huh? What you mean? I'm like clueless. Like, what you talking about? And I remember sharing my story with her and I made her aware of some of the barriers that I had experienced. So when I returned home, I came back 
hungry and full at the same time. Like, I've never knew that feeling could exist. I didn't even know what it was. But I was hungry to make changes and full to know that when Survivor Speak, change really did happen. I saw the changes that California had put in place. And I was like, oh, if it could be done there, it can be done anywhere. Okay, let's make this happen. What do I need to do? So I came back and I was invited to a meeting for National Crime Survivors Week. And I was like, this is it. This is where I belong. This is how I turn my pain into healing. This is how I help other people, not only my family, but other survivors who are experiencing or experience some of those dark moments. Even as a young child, I've always seen like gaps in policies and procedures when it came to people that look like us. And I always wanted to know, well, how do we change it? Because we know a lot of these laws were written way before and they weren't written for us. So as time changes, we got to start changing some of these policies because things are starting to look different. Like I did the research on why Ohio's victims of crime compensation policies were the way they were. So I understood, but I'm like, the mafia ain't really like in Cleveland for real, to my knowledge that I know. So why are we still operating off of something from 19 who knows what? This is the 2000s now. We got to change some things and catch up with the times. And let's talk about that a little bit, right? Talk about researching not only the barriers that exist in the law, but tracing that back to Donald's experience, right? Of you going to apply for a conversation and, and, and someone telling you you're not eligible because Donald have a, a felony four or, or felony five. But also in that hospital, when you talk to that young woman who you just came into that room to provide service and she told you I'm not eligible for compensation because of my felony. So during your research, what are some of the barriers that you found out about Ohio's victim compensation program? So it was crazy because like, I knew about the felony, of course, because I went through it. However, I found out the time frame on that felony. So the time frame from Ohio was 10 years, right? So you can be that 18 year old who was young and doing whatever. And then on your 27th birthday, you can be, become a victim, but because your 10 years aren't up, you wouldn't qualify. And I'm like, why 10 years? Like 18 to 27, you change a little bit. Like the little foolish stuff you may have done when you were younger, a lot of people grow out of that. Then it was when I was in the hospital, I remember applying for a young man and he owed child support. So not only was he out of work due to his wounds, but the compensation that he would have been reimbursed for went to child support because he was in arrears. I also found out that if you had controlled substances in your system, you did not qualify. You were denied. And a lot of times, a lot of these people, when they're being wheeled into the EMSs, a lot of them get controlled substances just to calm them down to get to the hospital, calm them down to help ease their pain. And because a tox screen was ran, it doesn't say when this controlled substance was in your system, but it shows a controlled substance. And I had people that were being denied because they had fentanyl that was administered by the hospital in their system when the tox screen was done. Unbelievable. So the system have been denying 
individual's right to counseling because of a previous record that could date back, you said, nine, ten years ago. People are being denied support long after they made a mistake in their lives. So you decided to change that. Walk us through some of that advocacy that happened in Ohio. So Cleveland, Ohio actually has their own Survivor Speak. It wasn't as big as California's, but we had a wonderful turnout. And so we had the opportunity to meet with legislators, sit down and talk to senators, even had the opportunity to speak with the attorney general. I saw that legislators are just as much similar to us regular people. And I was shocked because a lot of them have their own trauma as well. And they were able to relate. They were able to sympathize, but they were also able to empathize. And that really mattered a lot. And of course, we had individuals go testify for Senate Bill 36. We as Clevelanders actually said, okay, it's time for a change and we're going to show up. We're going to be there wherever you need us at to get these bills and policies changed. Just let us know. We there. And you all in Ohio have done amazing work from meeting with legislators, uh, doing legislative visits, testifying at hearings. I remember that first Survivor Speak back in 2019. 90% of those individuals come from communities of color. For a lot of people, it was their first time being in the state capitol building and to be surrounded by hundreds of other survivors who shared those same experiences, but were in the Capitol to change policies and to let lawmakers know what safety looked like for us and what healing needs to look like. I know survivors wrote dozens of op-eds, been featured in dozens of media coverage, really elevating uh, the barriers that survivors are facing. I'm excited that, India, you will be leading efforts. And India, before we leave today, I have one more question for you. As a crime survivor, and also as a clinician that provides trauma recovery services to victims and families, for those survivors and advocates who are out there listening today, what words of advice do you have for those survivors and families that are grieving the loss of a loved one? And what advice do you got to help them with their healing journey? As a clinician and a survivor, I lost Donald, but then three years later, my brother was killed to gun violence. Life was crazy at that point. The best advice that I can give anybody is one, seek services that you need to help you in your healing journey. And that looks different for everybody, right? That may be counseling, that may be support groups, that may be other healing modalities that's out there, but seek the services that you need. But also get yourself familiar with the resources in your area so that way, if you or someone you love or a friend of a friend, whatever, something happens to them, you're able to share those resources because that was me to my family when my brother was murdered. By that time, I had three years in, so I knew what to expect, how the system looked, know that the police may not give you a call back, the whole nine yards. So I was able to prep them for those moments. Number three, don't give up. If one door closes, keep knocking as many doors as you feel are needed so your healing journey is not stunted. Mine was. It took me 10 plus years to finally figure out what healing looks like for me. But also, 
if there's a Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice chapter in your area, get involved. Because what I learned is that your story matters and that you never know when your story may be what's needed for policymakers to address the gaps needed to help yourself and other people around you. Thank you so much, India. Thank you so much for your leadership and providing what our communities need the most, which is healing. So if you're listening to today's episode, as I mentioned earlier, India is the co-chapter coordinator of our Cleveland, Ohio chapter. The Cleveland chapter holds monthly meetings and different types of events and activities. So if you want to join the Cleveland chapter, go to www.cssj.org or you can join our Ohio statewide network. We also have other chapters across the state. Or you can join other chapters across the country. We are a movement of survivors that we are growing every single day in India. Thank you so much for helping to lead efforts to change the Ohio's Victims Compensation Program and doing that in partnership with legislators, doing that in partnership with survivors, and doing that in partnership with individuals across the state of Ohio who want to remove barriers as a service and get access to the help healing that communities need. Thank you. It has truly been an honor. When I say healing is real and it's needed, it only helps elevate ourselves. Again, I am truly honored to have been a part of this podcast this evening. Your story matters, but your mental health matters as well. Make that a priority. Most definitely. And if you want to join the Crime Survivor for Safety and Justice family, join us. Go to the website, contact your local coordinator or member in your state we have a lot of exciting things happening in 2022 so thank you so much india thank you so much to everyone who's listening today about the important role crime survivors play in removing barriers to victims compensation and improving access to services remember you can tune into all podcast episodes on youtube apple Podcasts, spotify and other streaming platforms we are healing through action in India when survivors speak change happens join the movement y'all